During our meeting with Timothy recently, I was, I was impressed with all of it, but I was particularly impressed with the lesson he gave where he was reading from some of the early church fathers, and he talked about some of the persecutions that the early Christians went through. And the one thing that stuck, the one that sticks out the most was, uh, I can't remember his name, I think he's Nero, fiddled while Rome burned. And I think it was him that would take Christians and, and put them on stakes and light them on fire and have a party while these Christians furnished the light at nighttime. And I thought, how horrendous. And I don't remember if, if he mentioned Daniel, but I remember Daniel in the lion's den. And I got to thinking about all these men like Abraham and Daniel and people we read about in the Old Testament. And I got to thinking, what can we learn from these people that went through these things? I can remember when I was a kid, I'd always heard about uh, knowing the ark and uh, Abraham sacrificing his son and and all these Daniel the lions then and to me these were just stories kind of like uh, Little Red Riding Hood and Goldilocks and the Three Bears they were just stories that you read your kids stories that you read at nighttime but as I began to get older I began to see that these stories all fit together to make a timeline that started at the beginning of the world and goes all the way to right now. And I realized that these weren't stories for us to read to our kids at bedtime, but these were put there for a reason. Paul explains in Romans 15 and verse 4 that whatever things were written before, Genesis, Exodus, Psalms, Job, whatever things were written before, were written, why? Why were they written? Just for history? No, they were written for our learning. For you and me sitting here this morning, that's why all these things were written, was for our learning. So I've picked out three people, well actually a few more, i picked out three traits. I looked back at the Old Testament and looked at people and asked myself, what can I learn from this story? What can I learn from this man? The first person I want to look at is Moses. In Hebrews chapter 11, in verse 24, it says, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. The first thing I want to talk about is that Moses refused. What did he refuse? Moses had two options. Remember, he's the one that they were killing all the Hebrew children, so his mother and sister put him in a basket by the river where Pharaoh's daughter came to bathe, and she found him, and she took Moses and she raised him. She raised him in Pharaoh's House, So Moses grew up with all the luxuries that you could have in the world at that time. But when he got old enough, when he became of age, he had a choice to make. Now he could stay in, in Pharaoh's uh, house and enjoy all the pleasures and all the food and all the luxuries and be on just permanent vacation, so to speak, and enjoy all the pleasures of sin. Or he could give that up and he could go out with his Jewish brethren who were slaves at the time, and he could live a life of hardship. 
The Bible says that Moses refused this over here. He chose instead to uh, um, the reproaches of Christ. Now, I want you to notice one thing in here it says. It says, He chose to, rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing or the temporary pleasures of sin. Now, we like to preach that uh, a, a life of sin is going to bring you misery and heartache and, it, and it's no good, but a godly life is going to be a good life for you. And that's true. But at the same time, sin is a lot of fun. I remember driving back, uh, we'd taken a patient down to Parkland when I worked at the fire department. We went down 635 and down 35. And I was, we were coming back up 35 and coming back to town and my partner was driving the ambulance. And I was looking out at all the signs and it hit me that when you're in the part of town where you see the signs that say fine arts theaters and gentlemen's club, you're not really in the nice part of town. But you drive through Dallas and you can see there's a lot of establishments, establishments making a lot of money selling sin. And there's a lot of people in there having fun. But there's another part to this. Not only is sin pleasurable, but uh, Paul calls it here the passing or temporary pleasures of sin. And Moses was smart enough that he could see that he didn't want any part of that. And so he refused it. You know, growing up, and I guess we still experience this now, but I guess maybe in our teenage years when we were in high school and finally kids get old enough that maybe they've got a car, they've got a cell phone, and, and they can start making some of their own choices. And they've got a choice if they're going to go the wrong way or they're going to go the right way. And a lot of us have seen... Our friends chose the wrong path. Some of us have chosen the wrong way and lived to regret it. But then sometimes people don't. I remember uh, one kid I was in high school with, he was into drugs and stuff, and he died 20 or 30 years ago because of his choices. If any of you ever watched The Office, you might remember Dwight. And Dwight says, before I do anything, I stop and ask myself, would an idiot do this? And if the answer is yes, I don't do that thing. (laughs) We need to be smart enough to look around us and look at the end results of what our choice will be to see if this is a smart thing or a stupid thing, an idiot thing. Because like I said, like my friend, we see a lot of people that don't even live to regret their, their choices. Moses Refuse. Well, what are some things we can refuse? You know, one of the things I don't like about religious radio and religious writings and religious preachers is that we just talk in generic terms. Oh, praise the Lord. Trust God. Let God and let loose. Or let loose and let God. And and, uh, turn it over to God. Well, what does that mean? I could get up here this morning and say, we need to be like Moses and refuse sin and then just move on. But what are some specific things we can refuse? Remember Genesis chapter 39 where Joseph was a a servant in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's Potiphar's wife started making eyes at Joseph and making advances on him. And he refused. And one day when all the men were out of the house and Joseph was in there doing his work, she caught him and said, come lie with me. And the Bible says that Joseph fled 
and left his coat. She grabbed him by the coat. He slipped out of his coat and left his coat in her hands and he fled. When he refused, when he fled sin, this was not just generic. This was a, a physical, uh, physical, visible, real thing that he was facing and he fled. What are some physical things that we can refuse rather than just talking generic terms? One of the big uh, things that we can refuse as Christians now is ungodly counsel. Psalms 1, uh, chapter 1 and verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. What does counsel mean? Counsel is advice. We talk about legal counsel. We go to a lawyer to get legal counsel. What do I need to do to protect myself in business? We get advice. And there's a lot of people out there on television and in books and magazines and uh, politics giving us a lot of ungodly counsel. And it's hard to resist. Well, she's the, they're the teacher. It's the school system. This is what they teach. This is what everybody believes. Well, he, he's a professor. She's a doctor. He's a psychiatrist. But are they giving you godly counsel or ungodly counsel? It's hard to refuse. There's people out there teaching evolution that God, the majority, well, I shouldn't say the majority, although the majority of what you read and see on television, people are saying that God did not create the world in six days and that evolution did it, that you're an accident, that there is no God. People are saying that homosexuality is normal. That it's just an alternative choice. That's not what God says. Who are you going to listen to? There are a lot of people, even preachers, that are caving and not standing up for God's word. And they're accepting these alternative lifestyles. There's a lot of preachers that try to preach, combine what God's word says about the six days and the creation and evolution and put them together. Now, are we going to be like Moses and refuse Satan and his lies and his teachings? And are we going to accept God? Are we going to refuse ungodly counsel? There, uh, Oprah Winfrey says, I saw a show years ago, she doesn't think that we should whip our children. There's a football player that got in trouble for whipping his kid with a stick. Now, I don't know all the details. Maybe he did beat his kid. Maybe he was a little too hard. I've been too hard on my kids. But he was doing the godly thing. The Bible says if you uh, beat him, you shall, save, you shall not kill him. You shall save his soul. Are you going to listen to Oprah Winfrey to find out how to raise your family? Or are you going to listen to God? The pressure is on you to not listen to God. People will make fun of you. Oh, you're just a Bible thumper. You believe that old book? Well, are you going to be like Moses? Or are you going to refuse it? Or are you going to accept it? We have a choice to make. We can learn from Moses to refuse ungodly counsel. Exodus 23 and verse 2, God warned the people, said, You shall not follow a crowd to do evil. Do you ever buy a tool or anything, a hairdryer, and there are more warnings of what not to do than the actual instructions on how to use a hairdryer or the drill? And you know why that's in there? Do you know why it says, Do not use a hairdryer in the shower? Because people have done that. <laughs> People are stupid enough, while they're in the shower, to use an electrical device to dry their hair. And so the lawyers that work for these companies that make dryers have to go back and write, do not use hair dryer in the shower. And so someone uses it in the swimming pool. Do not use hair dryer in the swimming pool. Do you know why God said, do not follow after a multitude to do evil? 
because people follow after a multitude to do evil. They've been doing it for since before God wrote this in the Old Testament. I can remember when I became a teenager, like I said, you got a car, now you're away from your parents, you got a job. I can remember the pressure put on me. Um, I don't ever remember any pressure to do drugs, but I remember the pressure to, to drink. People were always trying to get me to drink. I can make you a drink that tastes just like a chocolate malt. Well, you know, if I want something that tastes like a chocolate malt, I'll go buy a chocolate malt. But the pressure's there. And I don't know what it is about people that are doing stupid things. Because some things are just stupid. They're not necessarily sin. It's just stupid. I don't know what it is about people that are committing a sin or doing other stupid things that they can't do it and enjoy it and be happy doing it unless you're doing it with them. Maybe as a Christian, you're a reminder to them that they're doing wrong. And maybe if you do it with them, that kind of eases their conscience. And so they're going to put, they, they don't care about you. But for some reason, they want you to do it with them. Are you going to follow after a multitude to do evil? Well, everyone else is doing it. God says here, that is a stupid reason to do something. I heard a guy years ago on a motivational tape talking mainly about financial type stuff, but it applies to everything. If you're doing it like everybody else, you're probably doing it wrong. And that's what Jesus said, but he just said it in a different way. Jesus says, difficult and narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life. And few there be that find that gate. But broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many go in there. If you're doing it like everybody else, you're probably doing it wrong. I'll tell you something else we need to refuse. And that is unchristian Christians. Now that could be one of two things. That could be like one of our friends here that's involved in something they shouldn't be doing and and we can do it with them. But I'm kind of speaking more on the terms of all these big mega churches. You know, I talked earlier about uh, preachers that are not taking a stand against homosexuality. A lot of these big churches you see... It's just growing by leaps and bounds. This preacher moved into town, and, and eight years ago there was only 20 people meeting, and now there's 10,000 people meeting. They've got this huge, huge church that covers 14 acres, and they've got volleyball gyms and everything. <coughs> Excuse me. Or we go to church because it's exciting and fun, and that's what everybody else is doing? Or are we going to worship God the way God wants us to worship him. That's, that's the choice that Mo, uh, Moses had. He could refuse Pharaoh and the pleasure to sin and do things the hard way, do things God's way. And we've got that same choice. I hear a lot of people say, well, we're going to... I've heard a lot of people in the Church of Christ say, uh, we're going to go over to this church for the kids' sake. You know why they're going over to that church? It's not for the kids' sake. It's because that's what they want to do. They're just using their kids for an excuse. Are you going to be like Moses and, and refuse the popular way, the fun way, the exciting way? 
the way it's got all the trips and where all your friends go. And you go, you go to that little Church of Christ down the road. That you mean that old building? Yes, that's where I go. We can learn from Moses to refuse the wrong things in this life. I mentioned Daniel. In Daniel chapter 6, Darius had made uh, Daniel one of the three governors. And he had appointed a bunch of um, other leaders, satraps is what they're called, I believe, and put them under Daniel. And, and the other two governors. In Daniel chapter 6 and verse 3, Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought for setting him over the whole realm. In other words, he was going to get promoted. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful nor was there any error or fault found in him. So they were jealous of him and they were out to get him. But there was no way they could do that. So what they they made a trap. They approached uh, Darius and said, said uh, we really think you're the greatest. And we've come up with this law that if anybody worships any god for 30 days other than you, they'll be put to death. And Darius, in his pride, said, that sounds good to me. And he signed it. Kind of reminds me of politicians that say we won't know what's in it until we pass it. Maybe you should put a little bit of thought into something before you pass it. Well, they passed this law. So what did Daniel do? Well, first of all, what would you do if they passed the law that says if we find you worshiping any God for 30 days, we're going to put you to death? This is what this Daniel would do. I wouldn't be a Denton today. I would stay home. And a few of you like John and Julia, they live close to us. They might come over for a meal. And we would quietly have a worship service in our house. And we wouldn't make any waves. We'd keep quiet and lay low until the 30 days was over. And then we'd come back and start worshiping, right? Is that what Daniel did? In chapter or verse 10, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as was his custom since early days. Daniel knew that everybody was watching him. And Daniel knew that they were watching him to see if he was going to remain faithful or cave. And Daniel was faithful to God. Now, I don't mean this in an arrogant way, but Daniel thought to himself, I'll show them. And so he didn't try to hide what he did. He just continued to serve God the way he always did. With his windows open in an upper room where everybody could see him. Daniel was faithful to God. So from Moses, we can learn to refuse, but from Daniel... We can learn to remain faithful. Now, of course, the rest of the story, you remember, they arrested him. They were going to throw him in the lion's den. Darius realized what he had done and felt horrible about it. But they threw Daniel in the lion's den. And the next day they went and Daniel was still alive because God had shut the lion's mouth and saved Daniel. So what's the lesson here? That if we're faithful to God, 
that we will uh, be saved. No, that's not the lesson here. Because you remember that uh, uh, Timothy talked about a lot of Christians that were killed. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about people that were sawn in half. God saved some of them, but some of them he didn't save. That's not the lesson here. The lesson here is that we should remain faithful to God. But what do you hear from our non-Christian friends? Well, if there's a God, why does he allow so much evil in the world? What about someone that's gone to church all their life and then they get cancer or their wife or mom or somebody gets cancer and they say, how could God do something like this to me? Daniel could have said that. We read all those good things about Daniel. He could have said, after all I've done for God, how could he let this happen to me? Is that what Daniel said? No. He went into his room with the windows open and he prayed three times a day like he normally did. Daniel was faithful to God. Turn to the book of Job. Remember, Job was a very, very wealthy man. You read all the, uh, look there in the first chapter, all the, the animals he had and start multiplying them times $500 a piece or 1000 or whatever. Job was a rich man. And in one day, he lost it all. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He didn't say, why me? He worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. You know, when bad things happen to us, we cannot ask. Why me? Unless we're also willing to ask, why me, when good things happen to us? Because we don't deserve the good things either. God has blessed us abundantly. Joseph, I mean, Job said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I hear people say, I remember a farmer's wife on Facebook. It had been extremely dry and they needed rain and it finally rained and she said on Facebook, God is good. And that's true. But does she still feel when there's a drought and they have a complete crop loss for the year, a year's wages, does she still think that God is good? God is good now. We're all in good health, I suppose. When we go to the doctor next week, and find out we've got cancer, can we, like Job, still say that God is good? Can we be like Daniel and still be faithful to God? Or are we going to be like our uh, unchristian friends and say, if there's a God, why did He allow this to happen to me? You know, I've told the story here before about when our son Robert got hit by, hit by a, uh, or ran into the side of an 18-wheeler and was almost killed and people... A lot of good things happen and people say, oh, God was watching out for you. God was watching out for you. When you come home and your wife says the doctor said that she's got ovarian cancer, can you still say, God is looking out for me? I've got a pool customer. I talked to her husband yesterday. And three weeks ago, she was, four weeks ago, she was fine. Three weeks ago, she got a diagnosis of ovarian cancer and, and then a week later had, uh, had surgery. Can we still say, God is looking out for me. Daniel could. Daniel was faithful. And we need to be a Daniel. You know, I look back and I think, look, 
I said that I wanted to look what we could learn from these great men in the Bible. You know why these men are great? Because they were average men that when hard times came, they still did the right thing. The reason Daniel got promoted, there were a lot of just average Jews back then in captivity. But the reason Daniel was where he was was because of his excellent spirit. And people don't become great because they're born great. We become great when we remain faithful to God and uh, do great things, so to speak. Remain faithful. What about Paul and Silas? Remember they were in Philippi and they cast out. There was a woman following that was prophesying by a devil. So they cast him out. The people that uh, owned this servant girl were upset. They reported Paul to the police. The police come. They arrest him. They beat them with rods. Now, this isn't like spanking your kid with a switch. They beat them with rods. Their backs were probably just open and bloody. And then they threw them in prison. And at midnight, they were still awake. They were probably still awake because they were suffering a great deal. And they were singing praises. Can we remain faithful to God when hard times come, when things are not going our way, when we are miserable? Can we be like Daniel and, uh, and be faithful to God? Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He prayed to God three times. We say, say uh, God answers prayers. God is great. God is good. And we pray and we pray and pray, and we don't get the answer to our prayer. Paul play, prayed three times, and God still will not take this thorn away. He says, my strength is sufficient for you, or my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. You know, when things are going good, and we come to church and we praise God and say all these religious sayings, that means nothing. Anybody can do that. There are atheists out there. Everything's going good for them, and they're living good lives, and they're good moral people. But when everything is going wrong and you're miserable and you have no hope and you still, you have nothing to live for, no no reason. The Bible says that Abraham hoped against hope. When hope was the stupidest thing to do, he still hoped. When everything's going wrong and we still do right, we remain faithful. That says something about our God. And our faith in our God. His strength is made perfect in weakness. If these great men like Paul and Daniel and and Job had problems, what makes us think that we shouldn't have problems in our life? I heard it said recently that problems are just a part of life. The problem is not that there are problems. Their problem is our attitude towards the problems. We are blessed so richly here. Things are so, so very good. Mike's fixing to go to Nigeria where things, many things are so, so very bad. But problems are part of life. I don't mean to sound pessimistic, but if things are good now, things are going to get bad later. If things are bad now, things are going to get good later. Life is a pendulum. You go back and forth. 
When the year Danielle was born, I'd only been to one funeral in my life. Well, actually, I didn't even attend the funeral. I was five or six years old. My grandfather died. And uh, maybe I went. I can't remember. In the year Danielle was born, I went to six funerals in six months. My dad died. My uncle died. An elder in the church in Plainview died. Another man in the church in Plainview died. And then I don't remember who the other two funerals were. I just started a new job at Walmart. They probably thought I was just making up stories. Six funerals in six months. I haven't, we haven't had a loss in our family in eight years. But Angie's parents are in their 80s. My mom's fixing to turn 80. I'm not sure how old Ernie is. You know, we're fixing to start going to funerals again. Things are good now, but things are fixing to get bad. I was helping Candy on her house, Angie's sister on her house, and crawling around up in the attic and working and Oh, man, what is wrong? I just don't... Man, this is tough. You know what's tough? I'm not 24 years old like I used to be. I'm 50, I'm 57 years old. I was I was up there in that cramped attic. And I think, oh, man, we need some little short young guy doing this. My body's wearing out. Yours is wearing out. Right as we speak, that cancer could be overtaking your body. There was a fireman... I saw on Facebook where one of my fireman friends said, we just lost another good one. And it was Danny Roberts. And Danny Roberts is about my age. He was a battalion chief. And he was in better health than me. Took good care of himself. And I called Brent. I said, hey, what's the deal on Danny Roberts? And Brent said he died of cancer. I said, really? How long did he have it? He said, two weeks. Well, actually, he had had it a lot longer than that. He thought he was having trouble with acid reflux. He went to the doctor, found out he had uh, pancreatic cancer. Two weeks later, he was dead. We might get killed by a car wreck pulling out here on the road here in a little bit. If life's good now, life's going to change. Are we going to be a Daniel? Or are we going to be one of these people that says, Why me? If, if God loves me, why did he allow this to happen? He allowed this to happen because we live in a world of sin and heartache. And like Moses and like Daniel and like Abraham, we're not, we're just temporarily here. We've got our eyes set on something else. Let's read a little bit about Abraham real quick. I suppose after Jesus and Moses, the Bible talks more about Abraham than anybody else. Let's go to Romans chapter 4. Well, let me, let's get a little back up real quick. God made three promises to Abraham. He says, He says, uh, I'm going to give you this land. He says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And through you, all nations in the world will be blessed. Not just the Jewish nation, but everybody would be blessed. And so Moses, I mean, uh, Abraham had to get up from his home and go somewhere else. And we'll, we'll read about that here in a minute. But then also God said that through your descendants, through your son, I'm going to bless all nations in the world. And so God had, I mean, uh, Abraham had Isaac. But then when Isaac got to be about 10 or 12 years old, I think God said, I want you to sacrifice this boy to me. This is the son. God had told him through Isaac, you will be blessed. And now God's saying to kill this son. And so you remember the story where God took him up on the mountain? Um, God. Abraham took him up on the mountain. was just about to kill Isaac. And an angel spoke to him from heaven and stopped him and said, Now I know that you fear me. 
and De- uh, getting all these names mixed up. Abraham looked over, and there was a ram in the thickets caught with his horn. And he went over and got that ram and sacrificed him and saved his son. So let's read about De- uh, Abraham real quick. Romans chapter 4. Oh, let's see here. In verse 18, speaking of Abraham, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, so he hoped against hope, he was not weak in faith. It says he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Now let's go to Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 13, And when God had made a promise to Abraham, skipping on down to verse 14, So, talking about Abraham, so after he had patiently endured, he received the promise. Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place where he would afterward receive an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. Skip down to verses 17 and 18. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who had... And he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. When Abraham thought, I don't know how in the world God can bless me through Isaac when I'm about to kill Isaac. Abraham knew that if God had to, he would raise Isaac from up, up from the dead because he trusted in God's promise. So what does the Bible say about Abraham? He uses phrases, hoped against hope. Strong, he says he did not waver. He was strong in faith. He was fully convinced. He patiently endured. He obeyed, not knowing where he was going. He believed and he trusted. All these can be summed up in one word. He was steadfast. Steadfast means firm in belief and in motivation. You don't give up. You don't change. You don't waver. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58 tells us to be the same way. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. There were a lot of people that lived on the earth in Abraham's time. There were probably a lot of people that worshipped God. Abraham was steadfast. When all the odds were stacked against him, when he could see no reason for things to work out like he had been promised, he didn't waver. He still believed. He still stuck to his guns. He still did what was right. He was willing to kill his son having no clue how God was going to fulfill his promise if Abraham went through with this. And we too are to be steadfast. Christianity is not a sprint. It's not a hundred yard dash. But it's a marathon. You can't get to mile 24. That's enough. I'm tired. Jesus said in Revelation, be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. 
We don't choose when the stopping point is. God does. The stopping point is when we die. Abraham was steadfast. We need to be steadfast. Most of my life I've been in construction. And then I got out of construction, was in maintenance, fixing things. It could be a bathroom faucet. It could be a big wire machine. And I've worked on my own cars. And so of all the skills I've got, probably my greatest skill is problem solving. I'm not just a pool guy. I'm a problem solver. And there have been a lot of times where I've been working on something, especially cars. Because with cars, I usually didn't have all the right tools, didn't have the experience, uh, working on it at nighttime because I had to work by tomorrow morning, not knowing what I was doing. And I'm trying to get this bolt off or get this apart, and I can't figure out how to do it. And I try, and I try, and I try. And I sit back and I look at it and I go, am I doing something wrong? And sometimes I'll call somebody that works on cars, and they may or may not help. And I go back and I try, and I try, and I put heat on it, and I get a cheater bar, and I try, and I try. Oh, this is not working. What am, am I missing something here? And I go back and I try, and I try, and it finally comes apart. <laughs> I found out fixing stuff, sometimes you just got to keep trying until you do it. I've reached up under the dash to try to put a part on and I can't see. I can't get a flashlight up there. I can't get a mirror up there. It's too small for my hand. And I try and I try and I think, surely there's a secret to doing this. And I keep trying and the pen won't go in and I try again. I close my eyes and I picture it and I go, trying to see what I'm doing and I try. And that one time it clicks into place. Wow, that was easy. No, it wasn't easy. Sometimes you've just got to keep on keeping on in Christianity. When it comes to our marriage, when it comes to raising kids, when it comes to health issues, you just keep on keeping on. I don't know how in the world I'm going to get this apart. I don't know how in the world... I'm going to get this part up there. I have It's just not working. I don't know how I'm going to save my marriage. I don't know what I'm going to do with my teenage son. I don't know what I'm going to do about all these bills piling up. My health is just getting worse. I'm getting older. It's just one thing after another. You're just like Abraham. You're steadfast, unmovable. You just keep on keeping on. And sometimes things don't work out. You know, sometimes you get cancer and we pray and we pray and we pray and they cure the cancer. And we know a lot of people like that. But we also know a lot of people like Leah Stoneberger that we prayed for for years. And she was such a young woman, had a husband and two teenage kids. And we pray and we pray. And God didn't answer those prayers with a yes. He answered it with a no. And she died. Paul talked to us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in verse 13. 
But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, concerning those who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring him with those who sleep in Jesus, who are dead in Christ. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You know, when we read about Moses and, and uh, Abraham and all these in, in Hebrews and Romans that I talked about, it says about every one of these guys that they were looking for a heavenly home. They realized the promises and the reward were not now. And so I said, if things get or good now they're going to get bad. Sometimes things get bad and stay bad, and we die. Our parents die, spouses die, kids die in a car wreck, loved ones get cancer, and sometimes things don't work out like we want them to. But Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant like the other people who don't have hope because we have hope. So like Abraham, we can hope even when it seems like we shouldn't. Hope against hope so we can learn from Moses we can learn to refuse we can learn from Daniel to be faithful in hard times and we can learn from Abraham to be steadfast and then although our name may never be in the Bible no one ever write a book about us or tell our story we too can be great and on judgment day God will say Not just welcome, but well done. Paul said, for I am now ready to be offered in the time of my death is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. And that's what we need to do. Let's stand and sing.